Church, would you please stand with me as we read God's word? Tonight's reading comes from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. So more than watchmen for the morning, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your presence here as we had that moment to sing about your love that surrounds us, that it's like a storm crashing all around our life. Lord, even when we run from you, you make yourself known in silence, through people, your presence that is felt as we gather as your church. And so tonight we give thanks to you. We pray that we would not be people that worry. We pray that we would be people that look at your truth and trust in your goodness. And that tonight as we deal with a topic that hits home to all of us, we would see the freedom that comes by trusting in faith in your grace and your forgiveness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This evening, we begin episode five of our series entitled Soul Care, and next Sunday is the season finale. We're closing our series. Has this series been helpful for everyone? For some. For some people. We're a two-time church. Has this series been helpful for some of you? There we go. I know it's been helpful for me. Uh, God has been teaching me a lot. He's been challenging me. He's been working on my heart and my soul, uh, making me think about ways that I need to begin to care for my soul instead of ignoring uh, these things that are persistent in our life. So far, we've looked at anxiety and depression and loneliness, and last week was anger. And this evening, we're looking at the topic of shame. Shame is a topic that resonates with every one of us because all of us feel shame. Do you remember when you were in high school and you would, you would go on a retreat or you would be in a class for a group project and they break you into a small group with people that you don't really know well and they give you some icebreaker questions? And one of the questions was, share one of your most embarrassing moments. How many of you remember this question? There was like three of you. So some of you didn't go to school. You have not existed for most of your life. We're going to participate tonight. You guys ready? Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. That's, that's helpful. So you have this question, what is your most embarrassing moment? Which was always a really peculiar question to me because it's like you're sitting in a group of people you don't know and it's like, hey, get to know each other by sharing your shame. Like, I don't know you, but hey, here's everything that I don't want anyone to know and I seek to cover up and I'm going to share in this little icebreaker question. It's really weird. People always felt awkward in that. And so what I'm going to do right now is share with you one of my most embarrassing moments. Is that okay? So when I was in high school, I I went through an assortment of hairstyles. If you have been friends with me 
and you've been at the church for a while, you know that I had a man bun last year. And some of you are like, grow it back, grow it back. I'm like, no, it's awkward for pretty much all of it. And so I'm not going to do that. But I have really long curly hair, very curly. And I, I grew it out long when I was in high school and I did different styles. And I went to a school where the men had these restrictions on their hair. It was very unfair. Men could not have hair below their ears or below their collar. Now, for me, that meant I just need to find ways to keep my hair long but not break the rules. So I would try to figure out how to style it so I could keep it long, but it wouldn't go below the ears or below the collar. I actually invented a hairstyle I called the Tsunami, which was hairspray and a blow dryer to blow dry it up all around the sides. So though it was obviously way too long, they couldn't say anything because it was not below the ears or below the collar. But this hairstyle was ridiculous, and I, I couldn't do it for too long, so I said, I, I need to you know, change it up. I need to find some new pomade, some new gel, some something, and I can like, kind of style it different, kind of keep the curls in, so that when I wanted to let them out on the weekend, you know, I could let them out. <laughs> so I was at CVS, and uh, I found this pomade. Look classic, and I like things that are classic. So I looked at it, and I said, I'm going to try this. And it was called Murray's Pomade. How many of you know about this? Got a, no one, okay. Some of you do, I know. Murray's Pomade, real classic. Orange can, can't miss it. So I go home, and I'm really excited to use the pomade in the morning. I wake up in the morning before school. It's a Monday, and I take a shower. And I, you know, if you have curls, you want to put the product in your hair when your hair is wet. You don't want to dry it too much. It helps curl it up. It all gets through. And so my hair is wet. I get the pomade. I take a big thing of it. I mix it in, and I put it in my hair, and I look in the mirror, and I'm like, okay, it's working, but, like, it's real wet right now. It's going to dry on the way to school. So I drive to school. I get to school, look in the rearview mirror. It's still soaking wet. And I'm like, okay, maybe it just takes a while to dry. So I get to the first period class and people start making fun of me. You know, like, were you standing under a waterfall? Are you currently standing under a waterfall? Why is water dripping down your face? Why is your hair so wet? And I'm like, I don't know, man. I just, it's this Murray stuff. And so after the first period, I go and I wash my hair like in the sink and dry it with towels. And I'm like, okay, just, I'm going to have dry hair. It's going to look crazy, but it's better than looking like you're standing under a waterfall. It made it worse. Now, I, literally, it's two waterfalls on my head. All day long, I go home. I'm like, this is the worst pomade of all time. So I take a shower. I soap up my hair. I get out. I dry it off. I look in the mirror. It's still wet. So I get back in the shower. I shampoo it up. I get out. I dry it off. It's still wet. This lasted four or five days. My hair was soaking wet for five days. This product does not come out. It's made with Vaseline and other things I don't know. In fact, it says it's meant to stay in your hair for a long period of time. It's hard to get out, and it makes it look wet. It looked insane, and all week long, people are making fun of me. I have the nickname Waterfall Boy, all this different stuff because my hair is soaking wet, and you know how I got it out? Laundry detergent. I essentially destroyed my scalp and my hair with laundry detergent. It's the only thing that took it out. It took six times, six times to get out this stuff. So, moral of the story, unless you like a very wet look on your hair, don't use Murray's. Some of us have these stories. I think we all have these stories, these like embarrassing moments that we can laugh about now. They, they were shameful in the moment. We, we 
struggled with it, we were made fun of, whatever it may be, but now we look back and we can share it and laugh about it because it's light, it's superficial, it's not a big deal. But there is a lot of things that are stories in our life and are things in our heart that we don't laugh about. Shame that isn't funny, that isn't superficial, it's deep in there, and we would not want anyone to know what we think or what we've done or what has happened, and so we hide it away in our heart. And we try to figure out how to care for our shame that's deep in our soul, but we don't really know how because we can't laugh it away and we won't reveal it to anyone. Our passage tonight is Psalm 130, and the psalmist here feels this deep sense of shame, shame deep in his heart. And before we jump in and read, I think it's important that we distinguish shame and guilt, because oftentimes these words go hand in hand. We use them a lot in the sentence, I was full of guilt, I was full of shame. They're related, but they're different. You see, guilt is recognizing that you have done something bad. Guilt is recognizing that you've done something bad, while shame is recognizing or believing that you are bad. Guilt is that you believe that you've done something bad. Shame is that you believe that you are bad. See, what happens is guilt evolves into shame. The more bad things you do that you recognize or that you feel or the things that you don't do that you know you should have done, that results in guilt that compounds and evolves into shame. Where you not only believe that you're someone that does bad things, but you believe yourself to be bad in your core, in your soul. And this is how the psalmist feels in Psalm 130. In fact, he says, I feel like I'm in the depths below the earth less than, unwanted, unnoticed, unlovable. That's how he begins Psalm 130, verses 1 through 4. He says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, the psalmist begins and he acknowledges his condition. He says, God, I feel like I'm in the depths. I have done things, I have thought things that have created guilt in my life, and that guilt has evolved into shame. And I not only believe that I have done bad things, but now I believe myself to be bad, less than unwanted, unloved, in the depths, below the earth. And I'm asking you, God, to hear my pleas for mercy. That's interesting. Not pleas for help. You would think that if you're below the ground in a hole or in a pit or in the depths that you'd want help. But in fact, the psalmist is saying, I I need mercy. I need forgiveness for the things that have happened, the things that have, I've done or I've thought or I haven't done. That shame in my heart needs to be forgiven. I need your mercy, God. And so he says, God, I can't stand before you with my iniquities, with my sin. Nobody could. No one can stand before you, God, a perfect God, with all these sins. But God, I know that you're forgiving. And I know that you will be attentive to my pleas. You see, as there's this acknowledgement of his sin and his shame 
that he's in the depths and his condition, he also acknowledges that God will be attentive to him, and God wants to hear him, and God wants to forgive him. He feels safe coming to God even when he's in the depths. You see, this is such an important thing to see because shame seeks to desperately keep you from this truth that it's safe for you to go to God in the midst of your shame. Shame wants to tell you that you're unwanted, that you're less than, that you're unloved, and that God wants nothing to do with you because not only have you done bad things, but you are bad. And when you're in the depths, you need to fix yourself and clean yourself up and perform a little bit better for you to actually begin to have God's ear for you to be worthy of forgiveness. Shame wants to keep you from feeling safe with God. Yet the psalmist here feels different. You see, shame is a tormenting emotion. C.J. Young, the psychiatrist, said that shame is a soul-eating emotion. It eats at your soul. And you can't tolerate it. You see, that's what's interesting about shame. Shame cannot be tolerated. We can tolerate other emotions. We can tolerate anger and depression and loneliness and anxiety, some of the ones that we've talked about. Now, we don't want to. It's not preferable. It's difficult and heavy, but we can tolerate them. And we do tolerate them. But shame cannot be tolerated. None of us can tolerate shame. It always leads to action. Shame causes you to do something. You can't just sit in it. You can't just feel it. You have to do something. And that's why shame always leads to coping strategies. Whenever you feel shame, when you feel yourself in the depths, you are going to look to cope with that. You're going to look to hide it. You're going to look to cover it over because it leads to action. Think about the very beginning of human history. This has been true for humanity since the beginning. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God has given them paradise, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with God, perfection all around. And he says, don't eat from this tree. Here's the only thing. And Adam and Eve say, you know what? It looks good to us. God, like, great idea, but we're going to do our own thing. We're going to believe our own wisdom. We think this is better for us. And so they take from the tree and they eat and they have sinned. And now they recognize that they have done something bad. They feel guilt, but that guilt evolves into shame because they say in Genesis 3 that they were naked and ashamed. They felt shame and they could not tolerate it. So what did they do? They covered themselves up and they hid. They covered up their bodies and they hid from from each other and from God. You see, sin and shame always leads to action and it leads to coping strategies. You look for ways to cover and hide it. One of the main ways that we seek to cover or to hide our shame is through cheap distractions. We want to distract ourselves from it. We don't want to look at it. We want to hide it and cover it away and focus on something else. So maybe for you, that's your work. Maybe you put all this time and all this attention and all this focus and all this energy on your work, not because you believe that God has given you your job and that it is your calling to use that for the sake of others and even your success is actually going to generate resources for you to bless other people and that there's purpose and calling and meaning 
in your work, but that you dedicate all this time to your work because when you're successful, when you achieve, it makes you feel good about yourself. And so now your shame is being dealt with a little bit because other people are telling you how great you are, how hard you're working, all the things that you're accomplishing. And now you feel a little bit better about yourself because your shame is hidden over here, which tells you that you're bad. So you focus on your work to try to offset that, to cover it, to hide it a bit. Or maybe your cheap distraction is this. How many of us here would say that this is a cheap distraction? It's the first thing you look at in the morning. It's the last thing you look at when you go to bed. Every time you have a moment to yourself where your mind is not occupied, you're not being spoken to, your mind is not engaged on a task, you're alone with yourself and your thoughts and your soul, pull out your phone. You're in line, you pull out your phone. You're walking to work, you pull out your phone. You're in the elevator, you don't have service, you still pull out your phone. (laughs) Cheap distraction to cover up and to hide us from our shame. Like if I just focus on this, I won't have to think it. Maybe it's TV for you. Maybe it's politics, political news. There's a lot of people that look at the political arena and they want to observe it, not because they would say, I'm a good citizen and I want to educate myself and I want to, or because there's policies. Now, there's obviously a lot of that, but a lot of us look at politics because we want to see other people's shame so that it makes us feel better about our own. Look at them. Look what they do. Look what they've done. They should be embarrassed. They should be ashamed of themselves. So I don't have to look at mine. We have all these cheap distractions that we look to as coping strategies so we don't have to deal with our soul. The fact that we may believe ourselves to be bad or less than or unwanted or unloved. Now, some of us, we not only look to cheap distractions, but shame can lead to life-altering addictions too. Two of the main life-altering addictions in our country, in our world, that we as humans run to in the midst of our shame are porn addiction and drug abuse. You see, you may be like, well, how is that hiding and covering up? It's not, shame isn't only seeking to hide and cover up. It's also seeking to escape. And it creates this indifference in you. Where you just look for quick fixes and quick dopamine hits to feel good, to feel valued, to feel loved, just to feel something positive because you don't want to deal with how you really feel in your soul. So a lot of people far more than we want to admit, are addicted to pornography. And I say addicted because actually studies show that it is an addiction like drug addiction. And its effects are devastating. And we don't talk about it enough because we've just accepted it in our culture as normal and okay, but it's not. It rewires your brain. It affects your ability to have intimacy and healthy relationships It actually has been shown to destroy the gray matter in the brain, which is used for muscle function, speech, self-control, the ability to regulate emotion. And yet we consume and we consume and we consume to escape and we feel indifferent and we hide away to that for the quick hit for dopamine. And then in our country, we have an epidemic of drug addiction and drug abuse, which many factors can lead someone to that, but a big factor is shame. I'm already believing myself to be bad. I feel indifferent, so I just want to escape. It's an epidemic. You may 
not be aware of some of the statistics, but as of this moment, there are over 2 million people addicted to opioids. For 2 million. So this quote from Tim Kreider, who's an author, and he writes columns in the New York Times. He said, Karl Marx famously called religion the opiate of the masses, but these days, opiates are the opiates of the masses. Listen, heroin and fentanyl last year alone took more lives than the Vietnam War. Think about that. Drug addiction last year took more lives than the peak year of AIDS. This is an epidemic, and we are running to it in our society. It is attractive. It's a life-altering addiction that in many ways is fueled because of shame, because we don't want to deal with what we know ourselves to be and we feel in our soul. We feel in the depths. We don't want to, so we look for coping strategies because we can't deal with our shame. It's tormenting. It will eat away at us. And so we look to cheap distractions or life-altering addictions. There's a quote by Andrew Sullivan, who's a great author. And this quote is, was haunting me this week, and I had to share it with you. He says, the scale and darkness of this phenomenon is a sign of a civilization in a more acute crisis than we knew. A nation overwhelmed by a warp speed post-industrial world, a culture yearning to give up, indifferent to life and death, enraptured by withdrawal and nothingness. America, having pioneered the modern way of life, is now in the midst of trying to escape it. That's heavy. And it's true. You see, here's the problem. This is the reality, and it feels heavy, All of these cheap distractions that we run to, these life-altering addictions that are taking and eating at the soul of so many in our culture and our society, and yet all we hear is about our potential. You go on Instagram, you go on Facebook, you go on the the internet, and all you're going to hear about is how much potential you have, and you can just manifest your destiny, and if you just try harder, and if you just work more, and if you just think better, you're going to get the results that you want, and we create these expectations for our life, and we fail at them time and time and time again, and we just build shame, and so we're just building this need to look for more distractions, and we fall into life-altering addictions because we have this cycle in our society that is not caring for our soul. It's not dealing with shame. It's just covering up. It's hiding it away. And we're looking to escape it. It's sad. You see, the reality is this. All of us in this room have a good you and a bad you. There's a little chart I made up here if you want to check it out. There's a good you and a bad you. It's very intricate. Look at that. That's your soul. Right there. You never know what it looked like. There it is. Good you and bad you. If you want me to send you this graphic... I can. <laughs> Took a long time. But see, this, this is how we function, okay? We have the good you that says, I should fill in the blank. The good, and you have all, this whole list in your mind. You know it right now. I should read the Bible more. I should pray more. I should take more responsibility for my career. I should be a better listener. I should be more generous. I should be more involved in my church. I should spend more time with my friends. I should invest more in my kids. I should invest more in that relationship. I should be more self-controlled in my temptation. I should be more disciplined. I should eat better. I should get more sleep. I should 
limit my alcohol consumption. Whatever it may be, we have all of these I shoulds in our life. And what happens is when we accomplish an I should or we're on the, the, the path to accomplishing one of them, we feel great, right? You have an I should. When you accomplish it, you feel great. Like, yes, <laughs> I'm manifesting my destiny I'm maximizing my potential. I'm performing. This is the good me. This is the me that I want everyone to see. But all of us know that we have a whole list of I shoulds, and we do not succeed at all of them. In fact, we fail at a lot of them. And the ones that we want to accomplish more than anything are oftentimes the ones that we fail at, and we see no way of accomplishing And when you fail at an I should, or when you're nowhere near accomplishing it, you recognize the bad you. This is the part of you that you don't want other people to see. You would not share the failures, the things that you haven't done, or the things that you have done. You hide it away, you cover it up, and this is where shame is. You don't want God to see it. Even though you know God sees it, you don't want to go to him in prayer like we see the psalmist here because that's the bad you. You want to hide that. You want to cover it up. And so what happens is we live our lives recognizing deep in our soul that we're worse off than we want to admit. And we feel less than. We struggle with inadequacy. We're always comparing ourselves to other people and it's making us feel unwanted and unloved and unnoticed. The bad you but we masquerade as the good you because that's what we want everyone to see. But we feel like frauds. We don't live in a society that teaches us how to deal with shame in our soul. But the psalmist does here. You see, as he recognizes that he's in the depths and that he has sinned against God and there's guilt that has evolved into shame and he says, I could not stand before you, God, but yet, God, I know that I'm safe with you because you're going to listen to me and that you are a God of forgiveness. He then says in verse 5 and 6, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. You see the repetition there? As he's dealing with his shame, and he's coming to God in prayer, actually through this song, he says, God, I'm not going to be able to care for my soul with some coping strategies. I I can't think my way out of this. I can't work harder. I can't fix myself. My only outlet is to wait for you. I'm going to wait for you, God, like the watchman in the morning, like the watchman in the morning. I'm going to be looking. I'm waiting. You see, we can feel like there's no option to actually deal with our shame. But there is another option, and that's what we see here. You see, we're to acknowledge our shame. That's easy to do. All of us can do that. But number two and three is what we have to move to. Once we acknowledge our shame, you have to trust in God's forgiveness and hope in God. So we see the psalmist do. He acknowledges his shame, that he's in the depths, that he could not stand before God because of his sinful condition, and yet he trusts that God is a forgiving God, and he waits, he hopes in God for him to give truth and direction and guidance and clarity. This is the option to dealing with your shame. It's the only option but yet we struggle with it. 
Think back in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Before Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, they were in perfection. They were in paradise. Think about what that was like. They had trees there that you didn't have to follow some like really systematic watering routine and they'd always die on your balcony. They had this perfect harmony with animals. They didn't have to go on jeeps on a safari or go to a zoo. They could hang out with the lions and the rhinos. I'm sure Adam had a pet wolf. That's my dream. I don't want a dog that looks like a wolf. I want a wolf. Perfect relationship with animals and humanity. No fear of climate, hurricane season, no thing. No worries. If it rained, they didn't think, well, am I going to be able to drive because it's going to be flood six feet in Brickell? They didn't worry about that. Drinking water, they didn't have to get water from the mountains of Fiji, even though it's probably from, like, Orlando, you know? <laughs> they could just drink any water. We imagine paradise and we think about these things, the trees and the climate and the animals and the drinking water and all of these things that are blessings and benefits and they, it was perfect and yet that's not what made Eden perfect. What made Eden perfect was that there was no shame. No shame. No shame between Adam and Eve and no shame between them and God. You see, shame came into the scene after sin. And this paradise, this perfection, is actually what God offers now. He offers you paradise. He offers you no shame. He says, you don't have to keep your shame hidden in your soul, tormenting you, causing you to run after cheap distractions and addictions. And I'll take it from you. I'm offering you a relationship with no shame. My promise to you is that your destiny is one of no shame perfect relationship with me and others, but I actually offer you freedom from your shame now. You see, the only option to dealing with your shame and caring for your soul in this way is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. It's the only way. When you feel that shame, when you feel inadequate and unloved and unwanted and less than, you compare yourself to other people, which makes you feel even worse, the gospel reminds you that God was outlandishly charitable with you and that he has forgiven and paid for the bad you. He has done away with it and he sees the good you because of Christ and what Christ has done. When Christ died on the cross, he paid for your sin and your what? Shame. So in relationship with God, you know now that even though you may feel in the depths and you may feel unwanted and less than and inadequate. When you are that way, you can go to God as the psalmist does and say, God, I, this is how I feel, and yet I'm going to you, and I know that you're a forgiving God. I know that you're a merciful God. I'm asking for your mercy. I'm asking for your forgiveness. I am waiting for you. I am hoping in you, God. I'm not going to run to any other distraction. I'm waiting for you. But one of the difficulties is that Many of us here believe that. Many of you say, I believe that. I believe that Jesus paid for my sin and my shame and my destiny is relationship with God and his people where there's no shame and God offers me freedom from my shame now and yet we still live influenced by our shame. Why? Because a lot of us feel shame about needing the gospel. You feel shame about needing the gospel every day. 
you feel like you should be able to now string together a set of good days. And when you don't, you're like, how much longer can God forgive me? I mean, I'm presuming upon grace. Maybe I'm not even a Christian. Because surely if I really believe this, my life would be so different and I feel ashamed that I need the gospel. The Apostle Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You see, here he's thinking, obviously, about don't be ashamed of your faith. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of everyone who believes for salvation. In a world that looks to discredit and minimize your faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, don't be ashamed. But it's even more than that. It's don't be ashamed of the gospel, that you need the gospel, that you need to preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Don't be ashamed that that is your condition. That's all of our condition. Because it alone is the power. None of these other promises to deal with your shame will help. In fact, here's what our society says. You know what, how soul care works in your shame in our culture? It says this, just get rid of guilt. Here's how you deal with your shame. Just don't think that you actually ever do anything wrong. Truth is relative. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Just live a selfish life, believing that everything that you think and everything you do is right because you feel it's right, and it's, you believe it's good for your happiness and to maximize your potential, and as long as you do that and don't fall into this socially conditioned morals that your family and your friends and your society and your religion has put on you, just strip all that away and just do whatever you want and believe whatever you feel is true, you'll deal with shame because there's no guilt, there's no shame. The problem is, even if you try to do that, you still will feel shame because you'll still have all those I shoulds that you don't accomplish and you'll feel inadequate and you'll feel less than and you'll feel like not only do you make bad decisions, but you yourself are bad. And yet, the Apostle Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed that you need it every day for it alone is the power to save you from sin so that your destiny, your eternal life offered to you in faith is a relationship with God and his people that is free of shame and also it is the power of salvation from shame. It is the power of salvation from your shame. If you want to feel free, go to Jesus. Look to the gospel. Look to what God has done for you. He doesn't see your shame. In fact, it says that the gospel guarantees you that there's no condemnation for you. No judgment. Jesus paid for that. Trust and hope in God. I want to close with um, a short video clip here in a moment. Many of you are aware of uh, the case of Amber Geiger, who said that she walked into an apartment that she thought she w was her own, and she killed a man, and uh, she's been convicted now, and the brother of the victim shared his testimony on the stand. And I want to share with you a very little clip from it, because it's powerful. Check this out. I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die, just like my brother did, but I, see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of 
my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. Amazing. So you can tell that the gospel has gone deep in his heart that he's willing to extend that kind of forgiveness to someone that has inflicted such a tragedy on his life and his family. But I think a lot of us feel like the woman here. Our guilt has evolved into shame that we hide deep down. We want to escape it. We want to cover it up. And even though we may believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we feel ashamed that we can't get better, that we can't string together a set of good days. And we don't believe God to be like the brother who looks at us and says, I forgive you and I want the best for you and is standing there with open arms ready to embrace us. But see, that's what the gospel tells us, that you can trust and hope in God even when you look deep in your soul and deal with your shame. That God is standing there ready to embrace you as a psalmist knows and trusts when you're in the depths that God is a God of mercy. He is a God of forgiveness. He is a God that you can wait and hope in. Look how he ends. It's my prayer that this would be the declaration of your heart and of this church. He says this, O Israel, or O church, because we are the new Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel, he will redeem you, church, from all his or all your iniquities and sins. The gospel is the only way that you can care for the shame in your soul. And God offers you to hand it to him and don't look back at it. As we close tonight, I actually want to, I'm going to pray a prayer. Um, I I felt this week preparing for this that God was stirring in my heart to lead a prayer of salvation and a prayer of recommitment. I think some of us are at that place where maybe our shame has affected us so deeply that we've been unwilling to give our life over to Christ truly and fully in faith, believing that God would actually accept us as we are. And maybe many of us, our shame has caused this indifference in our faith. And we're trying to escape it and to cover up. And God is here tonight with his arms open inviting you in. And so I want to pray and ask you to pray with me if you feel that God is moving in your heart to lead you to faith or maybe to recommit your life to him. And then I'm going to 
set up the table and invite the deacons to come forward and and we're going to serve communion. And if you pray this prayer tonight, I want to encourage you to come to the table and find this table as a means of grace and come talk to myself, one of the deacons that you see serving up here or Pastor Tommy and let us know. We want to be part of your journey. We want to walk with you in a life free of inadequacy and shame, a life of hope and trusting in God. So will you pray with me? God, as we gather before you as your people tonight, I want to lead, God, us as your church in a prayer of surrender to you. Lord, you know the condition of our heart. You know where we're at mentally, emotionally. You know the shame that we cling to and that we hold to. So I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would stir in the hearts of your people tonight. That if there's anyone that is resisting you because they're clinging to their shame, believing you to be a God that isn't merciful, that isn't attentive, that doesn't care, that they would sense your love right now. And for those of us, Lord, that have been indifferent in our faith, that we would sense that you're inviting us in again to see afresh the beauty of your gospel. And so we pray this, God. God, we thank you for your love. We confess our sin and our shame. God, we are people that struggle and fail. But God, you forgive. God, I believe that you forgive because Jesus, you died for my sin and my shame. You were buried and you came forth alive, resurrected on the third day. God, I claim the good news of your gospel of grace that I do not deserve. God, I do not deserve to stand before you, and yet you invite me through faith to receive your grace and your love and your forgiveness. May I cling tightly to you. May I trust and hope in you, God, leaving my shame behind and seeing what you have before me. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.